0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak with two former Afghan military interpreters about why they're staging a hunger strike to show their frustration with how long it's taking to bring their families to Canada despite promises from the federal government. They say the delays can be a matter of life and death for their loved ones we find out why 200 current and former elite gymnasts and coaches are calling for Sport Canada to launch an inquiry into a toxic culture and abusive practices they say exist in their sport. But first, the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance, pleads guilty to one count of obstruction of justice in an Ottawa courtroom in connection with an allegation of a sexual relationship he'd had with a subordinate, first published by Global News last year we look at what impact the plea will have on the broader effort to crack down on sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. We're discussing a guilty plea to obstruction of justice today for retired General Jonathan Vance, the country's former chief of the defence staff. Defence Minister Anita Anand declined to comment on that case, but would say this.
1: As Minister of National Defence, my responsibility is to continue to build an
0: institution
1: where everyone can work with the respect and the protections that they need to do their jobs on behalf of our country.
0: Since February 2021, though, 11 senior Canadian military leaders, current and former, have been sidelined, investigated or forced into retirement. Joining me now is Megan McKenzie, the Simons Chair in International Law and Human Security in the School for International Studies at Simon Fraser University. She's the author of Beyond the Band of Brothers, the U.S. Military and the Myth that Women Can't Fight. Thanks for being here, Megan. Thanks for having me. I guess the, the obvious question, just your initial reaction to a guilty plea from someone who used to be this country's top soldier.
2: Well, actually, I'm not surprised by the guilty plea. I think there's an overwhelming amount of evidence to indicate that he is guilty. So it would be very surprising if we had anything but a guilty plea. Um, so that, that part isn't very surprising.
0: How about the, just the broader implications of this case? It came to symbolize something much bigger and much more profound about the Canadian military.
2: Yeah, this case was very significant. It was sort of was the first of a series of cases that showed a high level of dysfunction in the CAF When it comes to sexual misconduct, we had someone at the top of um, the defense forces facing Alex, very serious allegations and, and allegations that extended over a long period of time. And then after this case was, um, after, after it broke, we had a series of cases that are actually still continue. So I think the public is very interested in this case and should be interested in this case and seeing how it's playing out, I think is, a, a you know, victims are very interested to see uh, whether or not um, we're going to see different outcomes, given all of the attention, all of the sort of new commitments the CAF has made when it comes to sexual misconduct and how it's going to handle it. <laughs>
0: When you look at this, at some of the specifics of this case, how did it come to embody a lot of of that dysfunction that you describe?
2: I think what's in, interesting about this case and what is sort of illustrative of sexual misconduct, I think sometimes people can assume that sexual misconduct in the CAF or in other defense forces are sort of isolated incidents, but actually many of the um, incidents involve ongoing forms of harassment, ongoing forms of abuse of power. And in some cases, uh, relationships that maybe started out consensually and then become coercive. And I think this is an interesting case where you had a consensual relationship that um, the victim described as becoming coercive and very difficult to get out of because of the power imbalance, because of her concerns about her career. And so that that kind of illustrates some of the tricky elements when it comes to the military, where you have um, such a hierarchical you know, institution, you have um, uh, service members having huge control over other service members' careers, and it becomes very difficult, I think, for victims to know how to navigate out of that without destroying their careers.
0: I guess if you look at the facts of the case, one of the things that stands out is the idea that even after this was about to be made public, even after she had shared her story, he was still telling her to change her story.
2: Yeah, I think it's, um, it, I think it's an interesting example of someone who really was in denial and not willing to take accountability, you know, be responsible. Um, I think, you know, this, this obstruction of justice charge is very serious. And I think um, kind of confirms what the victim has said, that this is someone who has abused his power when it comes to this relationship. Um, you know, I think there's evidence from, from eyewitness and from colleagues that they were quite open about the relationship, even as Vance denied it. And I think that's really important to know that, um, you know, up until recently, Vance denied um, fathering a, a child with, with the victim, even though now we have a paternity test. So there's all kinds of evidence to support the victim's claims um, and very little accountability on, on his
0: part. In the um in some of those statements that were read out today in support um, again the defense lawyer in this case or the sort of the the, uh, the prosecution had to remind the, the court that that in fact uh, he was not the victim here
2: I think the what happened is I'm so outraged at what happened and I do think that it painted Vance as a victim that he's had a loss as a result of this case that it's been detrimental to his ability to um, make money um, that, you know, all of the support and references to his, you know, it may be that he uh, served well, but it is relevant to whether or not he committed a crime and whether or not he committed misconduct. And so I, I really think that these character um, references of support should not be part of proceedings, particularly when it comes to sexual misconduct, because we know that the good guy defense um, actually is compelling for for judges and for juries. Uh, we've seen that in, in other high profile civilian cases where there's this presumed, um, you know, that, that someone is often, it's only white men that, that this defense works for quite frankly. And, and that there's this presumption that they um, have so much more to offer society and that they're generally good human beings. And so um, and that only works when you have all of this evidence pointing to uh, distractions, I think, which is in the form of, you know, career references. Uh,
0: taking the, the, the letters of support into consideration, but also taking the conviction into consideration. And some of the words we've seen of late from the Minister of Defense, there's a, a report about to come out from, uh, from Louise Arbour on this. Uh, are we moving in the right direction or is today evidence of something else?
2: I think today is evidence that, um, despite all of the positive rhetoric so far and and some positive efforts at change, I think the Arbora report is uh, review is going to be very important um, and has already been very important. But I think there are still some systemic um, uh, problems that are are not addressed, including having. Um, character references in a sexual misconduct and in a criminal um, in a criminal case Um, I think ultimately we're going to have one of the most senior members of the Canadian Armed Forces who is accused of sexual misconduct where there's ample evidence of misconduct largely get away with it and and not face criminal charges and I think that's disappointing um, and not doesn't bode well for those hoping for significant cultural change.
0: And I'm back with Megan McKenzie, the Simons Chair in International Law and Human Security in the School for International Studies at Simon Fraser University. We've been discussing uh, Jonathan Vance, the former Chief of Defense Staff's guilty plea today to obstruction of justice charges uh, in relation with a case uh, of sexual misconduct, uh, with a or at least a case of sexual misconduct with a former subordinate. Um, Megan, in terms of the broader We've seen an apology, a tearful apology from the new Minister of National Defense. As you mentioned, we're waiting for that Orbora report on reform. Uh, What needs to be done now so that the lessons even of today are properly learned within a system that seems like, within a military, that seems like it's moving very slow to reform?
2: Yeah, I think one of the most concrete lessons that can be learned from today is that cases of sexual misconduct should not involve character uh, references and um, you know, shouldn't focus on. We heard a lengthy sort of overview of Vance's career today. And I think um, I think these character references can do, uh, you know, a couple of things that are, are problematic. First, they distract from the criminal charge. Um, I'm not sure how, the number of deployments relates to a specific criminal charge, quite frankly. And I think it can sort of, um, it really is part of what I've described as the good guy defense. It can kind of create a perception of someone as a good person, despite the fact that they have committed a crime. Um, And I think the other thing that those character references do is really show other victims and the, the victim in a particular case that senior members of the defense force have each other's back and that um, that really doesn't bode well, I think, for, for um, broader efforts to change the culture and to, to convince um, victims and other service members that the CAF really does have a zero tolerance, have zero tolerance when it comes to sexual misconduct. So I think that's a very concrete step that could take place both in the civilian context and um, uh, if, if the military justice system is allowed to handle sexual misconduct cases again. Um, I think there there are certainly broader um, steps that need to be taken, but there are, you know, and it is overwhelming, but I do think there's some concrete ones like that, that are sort of immediate that could take place.
0: In terms of just the the, the number of accusations and cases we've seen open against senior leadership in the Canadian Armed Forces over the last while, uh, and again, the apology from the Minister of Defence, the Arbor Report, you um, has the ship turned at all? Do you think is is, is I, I guess I'm curious to just as as to whether this needs to be like they it needs to be literally started all over again or whether they're at least moving in the right direction.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good kind of metaphor of the ship turning. I think one of the problems for me is that you have the same drivers. Ultimately, you have existing service members, existing leaders. So of course, there've been new appointments when it comes to culture. And I think those are good signals in some ways. But ultimately, you have service members who've had their entire careers within a system that's been described as toxic and dysfunctional. And so I'm not sure that culture change within the calf can be led internally. I'm not sure that it can be led by, you know, driving the ship by uh, from someone who who really um, has been internal to that. Whether or not, of course, they've they've been part of that toxic culture. But I, I'm not. I'm just not sure how culture change led by existing leaders is going to work. And so um, that's one of my biggest concerns: is that there's such significant change needed, and I and I feel like. Um, what might amount, what, what we might see is sort of some just tweaks and some attempts to sort of retrain or just, uh, you know, slight adjustments when actually we do need a full turnaround.
0: And this is obviously having a huge impact on even the effectiveness of our military, or at least the quality of our military, because literally, I mean, according to recent reports, women, uh, people who don't feel comfortable within the system are leaving and they're having trouble recruiting.
2: Yes. And understandably, I mean, this is an institution where, it, particularly if you're a female, particularly if you're racialized, particularly if you're a sexual minority, um, you have a very high probability of, of facing harassment or misconduct. And it's very unlikely that anyone will be accountable for that. I mean, I don't know how you recruit into an institution with that kind of record.
0: Is this... This is obviously not, we've been reading stories out of the U.S. as, as well. This is obviously not isolated to Canada's military, but is a, it seems to be a systemic problem in militaries around the world.
2: Yes, it is, particularly Western military. So I've looked um, really closely at the Australian Defence Forces and the U.S. military when it comes to sexual misconduct, and we see very um, similar kinds of patterns where... Um, you know, one of the biggest patterns, quite frankly, is that attention to this issue is really driven by these high profile cases. So in this, in the Canadian context, we have Vance and other senior leaders, and it will generate some media attention, some new commitments made by government or military leaders, and then often very little changes until the next scandal. And so I think what I hope for the CAF is that there is, um, you know, more than just token changes so that we do not talking about this in six months and sort of making the same recommendations around military justice, around accountability. Um, And that's a pattern that's, that's really gone on for the last three decades.
0: Megan McKenzie, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, tomorrow marks seven months since the last evacuation flight left Kabul, a U.S. flight after the fall of the Afghan capital to the Taliban two weeks before that. It meant that Afghan interpreters and some mission staff who'd worked alongside the Canadian Armed Forces were left at the mercy of the Taliban, as were their families. Well, since then, those already in this country have been relentlessly trying to help those left behind, including their families, either in Afghanistan or in neighboring countries. A government web portal was opened specifically for them in early December and 300 families, I'm told, applied. And Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship Canada told them that the first applications would be processed within weeks. Well, three and a half months later, it appears there has been no movement. Today, NDP MP Jenny Kwan called on the government to speed up the process, especially given the example set by Ottawa in its moves to welcome those fleeing Ukraine. They deserve no less. People who are fleeing violence, who are fleeing persecution, who are fleeing conflict, the crisis to which they face is the same. That was NDP MP Jenny Kwan earlier today in Ottawa. It's perhaps no coincidence that today the Immigration Minister, Sean Fraser, uh, on social media announced that Canada has welcomed more than 10,000 Afghan refugees, including 300 more today. Of course, the Liberal government is committed to resettling 40,000 Afghans in this country. But for those still waiting, they say the delays they're facing, their families are facing, can be a matter of life and death. Joining me now are Hamidullah Amir Khan and Ahmad Shouya. Thank you both for joining me tonight and for sharing your stories. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much for giving us the platform. I appreciate that as well.
0: Uh, you- I guess I'll start with, sorry, go ahead. I'll start with you, Hamidula. Um Just a bit about your story. Where, where, What are you trying to achieve and where are the people you're trying to bring to Canada tonight?
3: Um, well, uh, first of all, I want to give a big thanks uh, uh, to all the media organizations as well as uh, Uh, member of parliament uh, jenny kwan for giving us uh, um, the opportunity and um, to to come forward and discuss the the issues uh, surrounding former interpreters uh, that work with canadian armed forces canadian civil mission canadian uh, reconstruction teams and basically a group of 300 as you mentioned uh, that resides all over Canada. Uh, we have six representatives right now uh, representing this uh, uh, diverse group of uh, former interpreters. And um, we have been meeting IRCC um, key advisors, as well as the former uh, chief of staff, Mike Jones, as well as the current chief of staff, Olga. And we have had a meeting with the Honorable Minister himself, uh, Mr. Sean Fraser. Um, yeah so RSC promised us that you know initially they said that the 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 process will start uh you know in october right. or november but how then they, said may they do, I, the I, I
0: don't mean to stop you there but we've already we've covered this so I'm, I'm wondering where your where your fam where who are we talking about and where are they like what what is the, what is the problem and and where are the fam your families right now tonight and what and what kind of situation are they in well the, you know the situation is
3: very um you know it's a it's a bad situation right now for every uh, every family every ally that has uh, worked with the uh, canadian Armed forces right now uh, mm-hmm. my family as well as all the families of former interpreters are basically in constant move um they're under mm-hmm. severe threat uh, there's a threat to uh, uh not only the like the men also the the women of uh, like in those uh, families i'll mm-hmm. give you a few examples uh, here in British Columbia, we have had uh, one of the former interpreters call me and he told me that the Taliban went to their house and they not only physically abused their men, but also assaulted women physically in front of their men and also took their cars and their motorcycles. So as you right. can tell, you know, anything, financial aspect, your kids, your house, your life, everything is... Uh, basically at the mercy of Taliban. So, you know, every day that goes by, our heart and our minds are in complete, like, distress.
0: I get you. Ahmad, let me bring you in here. Uh, Tell me about what your situation is.
3: Thank you so much. Um,
4: As one of the representatives of the former resettled Afghan Canadian interpreters, the main problem with our family is not only mine, All what we are struggling for and what we are fighting for is because our families are in the worst situation of their lives. They are the victim of our contribution in support of the Canadian Armed Forces and the Canadian government. So our families are right now hiding. Every day and every week, they're changing their places just in the hope of survival. Right left our houses, everything behind, and now we are running around in the country just to make sure we are safe because Taliban are targeting us. As right. you might have heard the news from Al Jazeera that now the Taliban are indirectly trying to stop the families of the former or the, the, those that they work in support of the NATO and ISIL forces. So by giving right. biometrics and all that, we are forcing so, our families to put yourselves in danger.
0: Right. I, th- I, think, I, think, I think our listeners understand what the circumstances are. Ahmad, Ahmad, Ahmad I'm just going to stop you for a second there. I think, our, I think our listeners understand what the situation is and what the threat is. I guess what I was wondering is, who are you trying to bring here? to this country? Who, who, who exactly are you trying to bring to this country? And what has the delay been? And we've had this conversation a lot in the last few months, well, obviously with people in different parts of the world, Ukraine as well. But who are you trying to bring over and what has the delay been? And what red tape are you encountering, Ahmad? Um,
4: when we started this cause, when we started to stand up for evacuation of our families, we have been given numerous Promises from IRCC in the hope of evacuation, immediate evacuation of our family members. We want our extended family members, we want to evacuate them because they are being targeted as uh, the farmer, former, their son was or their husband was one of the main supporters of the Canadian forces and they worked there. And now they are being target, our families, whether that's our wife, our children, whether that's our brothers, our sisters, our parents, that is our main cause. And we want to evacuate them because they deserve to live a peaceful life. We do not want them to be the victim of our contribution.
0: No, I understand Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm familiar with your story. I'm familiar with the work that you did. I was in Afghanistan as well. Obviously, we know that the work you did with the military was valuable and invaluable at the time. Uh, Hamidullah, again, I'm sorry to ask this question again, but just in terms of specifics, because immigration cases often come down to specifics. What is the delay? I mean, you have 300 people. I gather there was a portal set up uh, for you for these families. So, where is the delay coming from?
3: Um <clears throat> basically I'll I'll describe everything like in, in, in three phases just so we can identify the problem. So the first thing is um the paper the paper um you know in what the paper uh applications that IRCC asked us to submit. So one of the key elements that we had the problem with uh from the beginning, from the very beginning, was that most of our colleagues here In Afghanistan, it's not a cultural thing to have passports, IDs, like for women, for children, for men, right? right? Unless you have a key government position.
0: So So a documentation issue, right?
3: Yeah, so so the Irish in the beginning asked for documentation, and we said we can't provide that documentation, and then we said that if if you want the documentation, we have to go back to the Taliban. And as we both understand, Canada does Mm -hmm. not recognize Taliban as a legitimate government. They have classified them as terrorist organization so you're asking me to go back to the same terrorist to get the same documentation that my process depends on there's so many there's so many variables so that's one of the things the other element is that the is was falsely promising uh... timelines after timelines the initial forecast was that the first quarter will receive almost the first batch of arrivals that submitted in december now that not only didn't happen, but also half of our people, matter of the fact, 65% of our former interpreters don't even have an application number from IRCC. They don't even have the UCI numbers. So how can we talk about the progression of the application when you don't even have the basic file number? So that has been a big worry, a big cause of concern, and a big uh, desperate, desperate plea from our colleagues. And we right. have stated that numerously to the IRCC. Now, the third right, thing understood. That yep. The third thing that the IRCC are saying that is causing the delay, they're saying that we can't get Pakistan to allow you guys to go there, but we can't pick you up from Afghanistan because we don't recognize Taliban. They ask us to go to a third country, yet IRCC and the Canadian government will not give us travel documents. Like a border pass to give it to Pakistan to show it to the Pakistani troops, Pakistani authorities to allow these families as they are on route to Canada. So that's that's right. like the three so, biggest. So 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 in a right nutshell,
0: now. no no documentation, no case numbers for for many, and yeah. no temporary travel documents to allow them to go to a third country to come to Canada. I'm just going to take a quick uh, quick break here, Hamidullah Amir Khan and and uh, Ahmad Chaeib. I'll be right back. We'll talk about what you want to see to step up to speed up the process, what can be done. We'll be back after this. I'm speaking with Hamidullah Amir Khan and Ahmad Shoyab. We're talking about Shoyab rather. We're talking about uh, 300 families that have applied to come to this country, families of uh, Afghan interpreters and other uh, Afghans who work for Canadian forces and the Canadian government in Afghanistan who are still there. Tonight. Obviously, under Taliban rule, it makes it very complicated for them to be there, dangerous even. uh, And they're asking for this process to be sped up. There was a portal set up, a website set up for those families, some 300 applied since early December. Uh, Those first applications were meant to start being processed within weeks, three and a half months later. Uh, we're being told that none have been processed, or at least we've seen very little movement so far. Uh, Ahmad, tell me a bit about this decision about the hunger strike and what you're hoping that people understand uh, and what you'd like to see done first, what you need to be done now.
4: Uh, our main goal of this hunger strike is because we have no other option but to show to the world and to the Canadian that we are desperately in need of our families' evacuation. Mm -hmm. This is not something that we will rely only on paperwork. We are talking lives. We are talking our loved ones. We want to achieve the goal to evacuate them. We do not want them to be suffering and to be in tension and stress and waiting for their death penalty or waiting for their arrest from the Taliban, God forbid. So what we are achieving in our upcoming or tomorrow's hunger strike is to make sure our 35% of the interpreters' extended family members who got UCING numbers, we want them to be evacuated from Islamabad where they are living and residing there in the hope of evacuation. And we want the rest, 65% of our extended family members, to receive UCI and G number. So from there, we can take it onward in the hope of our family's evacuation as soon as, as possible.
0: Great. Hamidullah, I, I, let me let me get this clear, just so I understand. There are, of course, some of these 300 family members who are, in fact, in Pakistan already. And there right. are some who are still in Afghanistan. So clearly the ones who are still in Afghanistan, it will be much more difficult at this point to try to bring them here, given the circumstances you were describing earlier with paperwork and so forth. Uh, what would you like to see done in the very short term? What needs to be done now?
3: Um. That's a very good question. Uh, so one of the main things that we have brought up to the IRCC's uh, IRCC's uh, attention uh, is give us a pathway. Don't just uh, sell us fake dreams. Don't just give us fake promises. Give us a pathway. Um, give you know I've proposed that to the Honorable Minister himself that we're okay if Canada wants to do biometrics and medical checkups. We're okay if the evacuate our families to a third country for a safe heaven until they're out of the Taliban reach, they're out of danger, and Canadian authorities can conduct their paperwork or whatever background checks that need to be conducted. The IRCC has failed to fulfill that commitment, even though they have told us that there will be no background checks in Afghanistan. And once we move them to a third country, then we will do the background checks. So that's one thing. No pathway. The problem is, majority of the people don't have passports. Right. IRCC and the Canadian government are telling us that we do not require passport, but you need a passport to cross into Pakistan, and we're not going to give you a border crossing permit or a card, something that will give Pakistani authorities uh, an assurance that you are on your way to Canada or on, you know the Canadian process, immigration. So that's right. one of the main concerns. The other is basically. The, the challenges in our this pathway right now is um, even the people that made it to Pakistan that received the UCI and G numbers have not been uh, received uh, with the IOM accommodations. Now, Canada funds IOM. They have been contracted by the government of Canada, yet our families are not getting the same treatment as as any other standard uh, refugee or immigrant coming to Canada So that's the other thing that, you know, is a big concern. And the third is the priority. Now, I want to be very specific here. When initially this process started, we were told that your families are coming under a special immigration means, meaning that this process is not going to be a normal process. This is not a personal sponsorship process. It's about life and death of the families of the people that were allies to Canada, to its Mm -hmm. armed forces. These are families in target of the Taliban because of our enduring relationship. So that's the other thing we want to make sure that people receive the UCI and G numbers. People there in Pakistan get their IOM accommodations and the processing priority. Now, we don't have any problem. Like a lot of media has been asking us, like, what, is, what are your thoughts on Ukrainians? I'm,
0: the- I'm down to my last 20 seconds. <laughs> so I'll let, I'll let you finish the thought.
3: Yeah, so basically what, what we are saying is that we feel for any other immigrant coming to Canada. But please, we're also Canadians. Be fair to us. Be fair to our families. We sacrifice with our Canadian allies, with our Canadian troops. Take care of the same way that we love Canada as 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 our uh, our next home, you know. Amidouli, Amir
0: Khan, Ahmad, Shoaib. thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. And we'll be following this story tomorrow as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank,
2: thank you. you for the <laughs>
0: Well, earlier this week, some 70 former and current elite gymnasts and coaches wrote a letter to Sport Canada asking for an independent investigation into what they say is a toxic culture full of abusive practices in their sport. That letter is now up to 200 signatories and there are more coming in. In the letter, athletes say that their fear of retribution has prevented them from speaking out for nearly a decade. They say, quote, however, we can no longer sit in silence. We are coming forward with our experiences of of abuse, neglect, and discrimination in hopes of forcing change. Now, according to the letter, there have been multiple complaints and even arrests for various forms of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. They say, quote, the current board and CEO of Gymnastics Canada have failed to address these issues and have failed to earn the trust and confidence of athletes. Well, one of the signatories is Kim Shore. She's a former elite gymnast who sat on the board of Gymnastics Canada from 2018 to 2021. She was also formerly the chair of its Safe Sport Committee. Kim Shore joins me now from Calgary with more on the letter, more on the demands, and more on the story. Kim, thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Tell me a bit about this letter. It, 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 when one reads through it, it's it's very stark. It's it it reads like a real condemnation.
1: Yeah, well, it is. And the letter is a result of athletes trying to work with the sport organization over the years and seeing very little result compared to the sacrifices that they made to address the issues. And now, with well over two hundred signatories. Um, Gymnastics Canada can't make this about one or two disgruntled athletes or their parents. It's, you know, it's a letter of coaches and athletes and even some of the gymnastic judges working as a collective body to really speak up about the toxic environment that they as children or young adults we're training in. And it really speaks to the very broken system that perpetuates the abuse.
0: I know that for each signatory, there's probably a different story, but if you were to sum up the story itself, what story does that letter tell?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right about the different stories. And I think it's important for us to note too, that, you know, the savior coach to one athlete could be the abuser of another athlete um these these situations are are very unique for each athlete for each coach for each club and we can't really make too many assumptions about whether anyone in the situation is good or bad or or not but what we do know is that there's massive institutional complicity and there is a system that allows uh, abuse to continue. There are individuals in those clubs and uh, and in the sport administration system that have enabled abuse of coaching to go on for decades. Um, so yeah, we're talking about some very, very harsh treatment in their very most vulnerable developmental years, uh, yelling, hair pulling, rough handling, conditioning to the point of exhaustion or blisters and and uh, burn from say a rope climb or repeated uh, attempts at a skill we're talking about public humiliation uh, being kicked out of practice for hours at a time sitting on the cold tile floors by themselves in tears uh, no parents on any of the the traveling like the trips etc uh, just overall Super harsh environment, and it goes that all the way into actual physical abuse, such as you know, I know of instances of kids being slapped in the face or dropped on their heads, and I I know of uh, situations of sexual abuse and and criminal behavior.
0: This is obviously a condemnation, but also a cry. I, I I don't want to call it a cry for help, but it is certainly a demand for help. Let's call it that what would you like to see done? What would like, what would the 200 signatories like to see done now?
1: Right. I don't think the athletes would mind if we said it was a cry because they'll, they just want the result. Um, you know, they, some of them are in a strength and some of them are in a place of real fear um, and serious compromised mental health because of their experience. What they would like is for Sport Canada to step into being more than just a funding body, more than just the organization that awards money for medals to these organizations. They would like them to also be really cognizant of what's going on in the training gyms across the country. How are athletes being treated? How are athletes being treated when they're taken on national team trips? You know, who are we having, um, you know, service and supervise these athletes when they're on a national trip? So they would like Sport Canada to have a real hard look, along with the rest of us in a very transparent way, what is happening? And how can we work towards improving the culture? Because even though I said all those awful things that you know, I know both first and second hand have actually happened in our gymnastics facilities. There are also hundreds of phenomenal coaches who are doing the absolute best for their athletes. It's not about their ego. It's about how they're developing the kids and they're doing a phenomenal job. I've had the good fortune of as with those coaches, my, my kids have had some of those coaches, um, and yet those are the coaches that are also brutalized. They're the ones that are made to feel like pariahs in their own gyms and usually leave, end up leaving the sport. So we all are crying for a shortage of coaches in gymnastics. But let's think about these toxic words that these coaches have to endure.
0: How is it that the organization has lost the trust of, the, of those athletes? And, and how is it not able to get it back in order to, to try to handle the situation internally for now?
1: I just think it's gone beyond what any organization could handle. Um, you know, precedence has been set, even within the sport of gymnastics, that an investigation that is scoped by, funded by, uh, organized by the organization that is being investigated just doesn't have the, the transparency and the, the distance from those who are in positions of conflict to be considered as uh, credible. You know, we've seen uh, USAG, so that's the US Gymnastics Association, we've seen them conduct their own investigations and they they just don't lift up the carpet enough to, to let the really ugly stuff come out. And what these athletes want is for full transparency so that we can see into those dark corners and, and really understand where are we at? Let's benchmark this and let's work on solutions that will improve the, the health and well-being of, of the athletes primarily. And I think vicariously, the coaches will find themselves in happier positions. And then we can really work towards allowing gymnastics to be the source of joy and excitement and, and uh, you know, amazing sport experience that it should be.
0: What has the reaction been so far to this letter?
1: It has been phenomenal. I have to say, um, you know, I'll, I'm just the spokesperson for these athletes, and uh, which is a position of, of honor and trust that I, I really value. And I'm also getting some really nice um, Support from athletes who say, "I've never been able to use my voice, uh, but I think I feel like you're speaking for me, and I so appreciate it that they feel like they're being heard." I have parents that are emailing me saying very much the same thing about how their daughters are still suffering from the abuse that they had in their days of training, and that finally they're so relieved that someone is speaking out. And you know, the athletes that are that are really the the strength behind this are feeling that way too. They're feeling galvanized. We've got tons of support. Just yesterday, uh, the Honorable Judge Rosemary Aquilina, who presided over the Larry Nassar sexual abuse, uh, horrendous tragedy in the US, she wrote, uh, a letter of support to the athletes in Canada, and said that she stands with Canadian gymnastics and their call for accountability. So it's recognition like that that's that's really helping uh, keep the spirits and this and the courage of the athletes up.
0: So what now? What would you like to see from those who this letter is addressed to uh, from all from all levels that could step in here? What would you like to see next?
1: I think most importantly, we'd like to see a response from Sport Canada. I mean, that's what the athletes are really asking for. That's why the letter was addressed to Sport Canada and not to Jim Can. Jim Can did come out with a statement uh, yesterday. And, you know, they, they made an attempt to address some of the, the requests and some of the maybe limitations of their ability to act. They made an attempt, but, you know, their definition of an independent inquiry is one that, you know, they've issued an RFP for a policy review. Well, that is not an independent third party culture overhaul, uh, a, a hard look into the delivery, governance and culture of the sport. That's what is needed. And that's why we need Sport Canada to be involved, because they're that one step removed. They are the funding body. They have the money. Um, these, these investigations are not easy. They're not, they're not low cost, but, you know, if we can fix gymnastics, who has a membership base of over 300,000, mostly young people, mostly kids, um, we, we have a model that we can apply to all kinds of sports in Canada. I mean, I, we're not alone in gymnastics and we know this. I mean, it was the, bobsled skeleton athletes that really inspired uh, be, this gymna- gymnastics group of athletes to come forward with their letter. And, you know, we expect other sports will will follow suit because we've allowed sport in Canada to go off the healthy uh, path that sports should be on.
0: I'm sure. Thank you so much for your time uh, and for telling us more about this important letter. Uh, and we'll see, what happens in the next few weeks and months to see if uh, there is the kind of reaction you're hoping for.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Ben.